Look, I, I have the record for the longest speech ever on the floor. I don't have a problem getting a record for the most votes for speaker, you too. Thank you all. Welcome to a new year of the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. Well, there's plenty of drama happening on the Hill this week. We'll talk a little bit more big picture, how we got here and what it maybe says about the next two years of Congress, the next two years of the Republican Party heading into 2024. And we'll see if we hit a few other topics along the way. Speaker of the House. Um, how did we get here? <laughs> um, where do you want me to start? Well, see, back in 2015, the sky ran for president. Um, no, we, we won't do that. Um, it, you know, this has been an interesting few days. We've had um, now six votes on Kevin McCarthy's bid to become Speaker, and he has stagnated, um, actually lost a couple votes. Um, and it appears, appeared as of uh, evening news time yesterday that, that we were at an impasse and that the people supporting Kevin McCarthy were losing patience uh, with his continued efforts to be speaker and, and certainly tiring of the, the objections of the, the 20 um, folks fighting McCarthy. Uh, then late uh, Wednesday evening, there was additional negotiations and a series of concessions that the McCarthy side made, some of them on process in the House, um, nearly all of which would empower uh, the, the folks that Jonah has called the nihilists. Uh, the 20 people objecting to Kevin McCarthy, um, and might also have the effect of empowering some centrists. But I think the the goal, obviously, is to empower the the Freedom Caucus types. And then also a very important and interesting political concession, which the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is Kevin McCarthy's PAC, uh, has agreed not to compete in open primaries, not to fund... McCarthy preferred or establishment preferred candidates in open primaries, a deal that they struck with the club for growth, which was at one time a free market sort of movement conservative uh, outside funding group and has now become a super Trumpy MAGA world um, America first kind of radical funding group. I think the long and short of of this, where we are now, is the kinds of things that Kevin McCarthy is doing to become speaker make it more likely, effectively give power on both process and policy to the nihilist super mega crowd. And in political concessions, make it more likely that there will be more of those kinds of Republican members in the future. Just one clarification. Can I just make one clarification? I don't think they're all nihilists. I've, as Sarah and I discussed on the Dispatch Live, I think the sort of the Chip Roy crowd, I think are wrong on some tactical and strategic things, but they actually are sincere in what they want. They're not asking, they're not just being performative, but like the Matt Gates fringe and Andrew Biggs fringe, I think are in fact nihilists. But Steve, fine, let's accept all of that is true for a second. It certainly seems like everyone is happy to have Steve Scalise as speaker. McCarthy's number two guy from Louisiana, pretty conservative, isn't seen as sort of this establishment flip-flopping boogeyman who nobody can trust, which is what, you know, many of the critics say about McCarthy, right? He comes in as a Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor guy. Then he's a Trump guy. Then he criticizes Trump after January 6th. Then he goes down to Mar-a-Lago. Um, so, why not step aside and have Steve Scalise do this job? Well, I mean, I think it's a good question. I'd say the easy and short answer is Kevin McCarthy has worked his entire life to get to this moment, and he's not going to give it up. 
um, you saw the kinds of things that McCarthy did in the two years preceding this moment to set himself up to be this guy. Um, you know, his, we've talked about it here before, but his trip down to Mar-a-Lago within just a few weeks of Donald Trump inciting the, the uh, violence on Capitol Hill and McCarthy holding Trump responsible for inciting the violence on Capitol Hill uh, was certainly the, the first step. And I think what, what turned out to be a harbinger of, of things to come. So I think that's the short and, and easy answer is McCarthy just wants this too bad. The, but I mean, at some point he's given away the whole farm. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. And he's it's not about running for like 10 It's days. not about running the house. It's about Kevin McCarthy being speaker. I mean, it is, it is the ultimate, I need to get to the destination um, objective than more than I think, really more than anything else. I mean, Kevin McCarthy talked talk to people, talked to virtually any House Republican, including people who support Kevin McCarthy. And they will tell you, he just really doesn't believe anything. This is not somebody who has deep principles. This is not somebody who's guided by strong policy views. He's bored by policy. If you talk to him about policy, he doesn't really care. This is a guy who's, who's I think, all about power and who wants the title, wants the, the chair. And if no it means... No matter how weak the position will yeah, be, no matter if it how means, short the tenure will be. One of the, one of the reportedly, one of the, the most recent concessions was, in effect, that any single member of the House could uh, could offer a motion to vacate, basically like boot the speaker. It, the, the, the previous threshold had been five, and uh, according to uh, a lot of reporting, McCarthy had sort of said, that's a red line. We're not going below five no matter what. And, and now, again, reportedly, they are at one. I mean, that really has the effect of, of uh, weakening the speaker at any, at any moment, at any, any person could, could call him back. So I think that's the, the first part of the, the answer. The second part of the answer is I do think you're right that, that Scalise is, is viewed more of a consensus candidate. And it's certainly not the case that despite their public um, display of unity, Scalise and McCarthy are not that tight. Scalise uh, is deep, deep uh, skepticism of, of McCarthy, I would say, um, has been known to criticize him in the harshest possible ways in private conversations. Um, and, you know, interesting, couple interesting tidbits about that. When McCarthy put out a list of 54 House Republicans who supported his bid for speaker, Steve Scalise was not on the list. And this was at a time when he was being publicly floated as a potential alternative. Scalise did not sign this list of supporters for Kevin McCarthy. Um, and then when Scalise gave a nominating speech for McCarthy earlier in this process, the speech was very heavy on the reasons that Republicans should get together and move beyond this, this difficult moment. And very light to the point of, of almost not having any um, language extolling the virtues of Kevin McCarthy or praising Kevin McCarthy as a leader. And it was one of those moments where he said more by what he didn't say than by what he actually said. The final point is, I think, if you're a Republican, Scalise comes with his own baggage. Remember, this is somebody who reportedly said, um, he's from Louisiana, um, said a couple decades ago, I'm David Duke without the baggage. Um, so on a policy side, if you're a Republican Party... But he doesn't have the baggage, Steve, so it's good. <laughs> Well, if you're if you're a if you're a uh, you know a, a moderate or a you know a sane conservative in the House of Representatives, and you look back at what just happened in the 2022 midterms, you know is that is that what you're looking for? Hard to make an argument that it is, but then again, none of this is what you're looking for if you actually are processing the lessons of 2022. All right, Jonah, I want to rehash a bit of our conversation from Dispatch Live on Tuesday night. As you said, first of all, this group of 20 slash 21, if you count the present voter, a congresswoman from Indiana who is potentially looking at that open Senate seat in 2024, um, which I mentioned because it's, it's interesting to me that if you believe you're about to run in a Republican primary in Indiana, uh, you see this as a defining vote, potentially. Um, although, you know, voting present is a vote against McCarthy 
at, if you're on the Republican side, if you're on the Democratic side, interestingly, it's a vote for McCarthy. Um, so of those, let's call them 21, A, it's there's not a clear ideological through line. Um, you have Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates in the Never Kevin crowd, but you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan voting for Kevin McCarthy. Um, it's not just Trump or not Trump or more conservative or less conservative. Um, and I think even within the 21, there's a lot of different animating principles. As you said, Chip Roy uh, stands out as sort of having an intellectual or, or principle bent, I guess is a better term, behind the movement that he's leading on this that's different maybe than some of the nihilists. And I thought that the point that you made about the overall changes and what it means to be a junior or relatively junior member of Congress in 2023 and how different that is than what it was to be a junior member of Congress in 1993 or even a senior member of Congress is part of what gets us here. And it's worth diving into that so we can think more deeply about it's not just Trump that causes this revolt to happen. There's other factors. Is that the question? <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, Put question mark here. Where, where to begin on this? Um, I just wrote a G file about how I've actually made peace with this whole thing. I think this is, this is actually what democracy looks like. And um, this is as every bit as much as a presidential inauguration, the peaceful transfer of power. And so here you have even people who were trying, who were complicit in an attempted non-peaceful overthrow of power in a certain sense, um, obeying the rules to try and figure out how to, you know, uh, appoint someone from a different party than the current one that runs it. And Congress and if, is really the thing that runs Congress or runs the, is the, is the chief branch, is the first branch of government and is the more powerful branch of government. And is, if anything, the real source of political authority in this country. So I kind of like this, the, the, the spectacle. I like the arguments that Chip Roy and those guys are making. I think they're strategically ill-informed, but the reason why this is such a mess is because Congress is weak and, um, and Congress is weak in part because it has been run dictatorially by speakers for the last 20 years, particularly Nancy Pelosi. And, um, and this is where I kind of disagree with Steve a little bit. I mean, I get the argument that, McCarthy is agreeing to weaken the speakership. I just couldn't give a rat's ass. Um, and I think that in some ways, uh, if it strengthens committees and brings back process, uh, then I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't think this distinction between one and five votes for to vacate the chair um, matters because if you can get like those five never Kevins would vote as a group anyway. And you could always get to five hotheads and, and morons on almost anything. So who cares? It's like one is as good as five. And it doesn't mean you automatically, like one person gets to get to topple the speaker. It means one person gets to vote to topple the speaker. And so like maybe all of a sudden giving rank and file members responsibility um, will make them act more responsibly. It's a pipe, maybe a pipe dream. Anyway, to get to your actual question if I understand it correctly. Um, because Congress is so unbelievably dysfunctional, it attracts people who want to be performative. It attracts people who want to um, leap into the limelight and say, look at me, look at me. And um, uh, because, because they don't there's actually not a real have... legislative agenda that you can accomplish as a member of Congress anymore. There's not a real legislative process, right? I mean, that, I mean, that's where those guys are totally right about the omnibus stuff, right? I mean, like, there are only like four times in the last 20 years as Congress actually proposed a, and voted on a real budget. Um, uh, there is no coherence um, to the legislative process the way it was once understood. You know, as we were saying the other night, there was a time in this country where like when I first came to Washington, you could have an argument about whether Dan Rostenkowski, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, was more powerful than uh, Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. I'm not saying that was necessarily all a good thing, but, you know, Paul Ryan used to at least make the point that committee chairs are actually experts in legislation because they study it all week long and they work on it all week long. And the idea that you're going to replace committee chairs with 28-year-old uh, staffers 
um, in the speaker's office is just really stupid and it's undemocratic and it's unaccountable and it breeds this kind of dysfunction where I think McCarthy and that crowd have made, are making a colossal blunder is this, if I understand it correctly, this deal about the congressional leadership fund and club for growth, where they're basically going to give a free pass or make it much easier for more morons, gibbons, poltroons, and maroons to come into Congress in the form of, you know, more, more Lauren Boberts and more Margie Taylor Greens um, by saying that leadership will no longer try to try to encourage electable good candidates. Um, they will let a thousand magas bloom. And I think that is insane. I think this is, you know, I'm a broken record on part of the problem this country is, a big part of the problems this country has is weak parties. It's funny, last night I'm on CNN, we're all talking about, oh my God, the Club of Growth has weighed in. Oh my God, the Congressional Leadership Super PAC has weighed in. And like, no one's talking about the Republican Party weighing in. Like, if there was an actual GOP establishment, they'd be working phone banks to muster support for McCarthy and all that. There's no party. There's no establishment. Um, and so this is the kind of Congress you get when there's there's no one willing to assert institutional authority for the long-term interests of various institutions like Congress or the Republican Party. So, Steve, seeing this as a symptom rather than the problem itself, what does it mean for the next two years of Congress? I don't think it changes a ton. I mean, depending, you know, a lot of this depends on the details, like how, how does this actually work out? Um, but let's say for the sake of discussion that these concessions work, that Kevin McCarthy can bring over um, enough of the never Kevin or the, at least the 20 folks who had voted to, uh, to block him repeatedly so that Kevin McCarthy ends up being speaker. I don't, by the way, think that's the likeliest outcome here still. Um, but let's say for the sake of discussion that, that it is. I don't know that it has a, that, that it makes a tremendous amount of difference in what happens over the next couple of years, um, because I think we were going to see chaos no matter what, right? I mean, to Jonah's point, it is the case that a small number of um, obstreperous Republicans can block anything, uh, get together and, and create havoc. Um, that was the case before. That's the case now. I think lowering the threshold either on the motion to vacate or on some of these other uh, things that, that at least in my view, seems to empower them more just makes it easier, makes the process easier for them. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a, a comment from someone in an Axios piece uh, this morning. We're recording this uh, mid-Thursday morning. Uh, about how typically the vote for speaker is literally the easiest vote in any particular Congress. That still may be true. Uh, <laughs> and it, it doesn't bode well for actually getting anything done because you can imagine if, if these are the kinds of fights on issues like this, what happens with the debt ceiling vote, for instance. That's what this seems to be all about to me. I mean, when you when you hear Chip Roy explain his reservations about Kevin McCarthy, all I hear is debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling. And in some ways, it's like a direct line from the Tea Party movement, which Chip really came up during, you know, in terms of his right. sort of political career. Um, that This is actually going back to 2009. And the problem... Um, is that it keeps falling off the cliff at the debt ceiling talks instead of dealing with it at any time before that. And I think that's part of the beef with McCarthy is that you had all this time to deal with it and to, to make a strong line or to have solutions. And instead, we're going to come up on the debt ceiling. And once again, everyone's going to be pressured to vote to increase it because we don't have a choice. And at least that's what you're going to tell everyone when we did have a choice before the day the debt ceiling needed to be raised. So I think, I mean, I think both of your points about Chip, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he's acting out of more conviction and principle than most of the people who, who are doing the same way. You can disagree with that conviction and that principle, by the way. Right. And and look, and he's been he's been a lot more MAGA than I would say I would have expected at the beginning of this as somebody who, who thinks that, that he really cares about limiting the size and scope of, of government. But 
if he's making those arguments on the debt ceiling stuff for the purposes of limiting government, fair enough. I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic to, to doing as much as we can to limit the size and scope of government. I don't think that's what's happening with virtually every other Republican or to the extent that it is happening with other Republicans in the House. They were silent about the size and scope of government throughout the Trump years. And now they're suddenly concerned about it when they think they can use it as a political issue under Joe Biden. Now, look, there's a lot to criticize. Regardless, we're going to be we're hurtling toward that debt ceiling vote. And if this is the speakership vote, I mean, should we all be pretty concerned about the debt ceiling vote? We should be. And and look, the, the way that we've done the debt ceiling over the past 15 years has been stupid. Uh, raising the debt ceiling, as, as we've talked about here before, raising the debt ceiling allows the U.S. government to make good on obligations it's already undertaken. So if you want to have a fight about limiting the size of government, have a fight on the front end. You can't do it on the back end. And the potential consequences, once you get past these uh, extra measures the U.S. government can take, I think are catastrophic. I think the people who are worried about, you know, real calamity if we were to default. I think they're right. Um, but at, at the same time, just continuing to, to spend like there are no limits on our spending uh, is pretty silly. Jonah, where does this leave the Republican Party moving forward? On the one hand, you can say like, well, they didn't deal with any of their fractures. And this is what happens is instead of, you know, small tectonic bumps, you have an earthquake. And this earthquake happened to fall in the speakership vote. Does that mean they are dealing with it right now and everyone's going to work it out and hold hands and sing kumbaya, however this may end on the back end? Because some of the things that these colleagues are saying about each other don't feel very collegial. And I'm not sure if a week from now, when this has all been resolved one way or the other, um, those hard feelings are going to be better rather than worse. Yeah, I, I don't see Dan Crenshaw and Lauren Boebert going out, you know, playing to play pool anytime soon. Um, uh, I sus- first of all, I suspect that this whole drama will um, be another one of these things that seemed hugely important in the moment. The two weeks later, we're like, oh yeah, that happened. Um, um, which is not to, to, to dismiss it entirely because it's politically very significant. It's just, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm rebelling against all of the people talking about the people's business can't get done. You know, like you hear all of this sort of verbiage as if like the house hasn't convened on January 8th instead of January 3rd before and like nothing can get done anyway because the Senate isn't even in session yet. I mean, it just it, there's also a they're lot really of, eager to get those Hunter Biden investigations underway. Exactly. You know, it's there's so much sort of it's like, like it, one of the things that's been very interesting to me about this is the way in which people are trying to make this event more important than it is and to see how they frame it to make it seem more important. Like Newt Gingrich has literally said, the war on Kevin McCarthy is a war on conservatism on the Republican Party (laughs) and really on the country. And like, that is a trifecta of wrongness. Um, And uh, anyway, so like, I, I think that this is one of these things where in terms of the functioning of the house, there is going to be, there's probably going to be a, it's not a kumbaya moment. It is going to be a sort of let's restock the shelves with ammo moment. That looks like a kumbaya moment um, where everyone is sort of like, you know, that sort of anchorman fight scene was fun, but we need to cool things down for a little while and seem like we're all on the same page. But there are going to be long memories long after this. I have a question for you guys though. Um, I think it's a small indication of liberal media bias, which is not the point I want to get at. But when ever the issue of should Democrats do something constructive that will be perceived as letting the Republicans out of the trap, everyone thinks that that's just insane. And I get the argument that it's politically insane. 
right? I get it. And I think it's probably correct that it's politically insane. The Democrats are loving this and their base is loving this and um, all the rest. But I can make a case for even a cynical, a cynical maneuver by the Democrats that would look more like responsible governing, which is to say, why can't the Democrats offer some sort of power sharing thing, sort of like I mean, McConnell and Schumer had one for the Senate where they offer something that seems entirely reasonable to a normal person, maybe not to me, maybe not to the base of the Republican Party or maybe not to the base of the Democratic Party, but to a normal person who's just like, who, who will always say to you when you run into them in the airport, why can't those guys in Washington just do their jobs? Make that kind of offer and then let the Republicans reject it, right? Because then you get the, we're, we, we took the high road, cred, and the Republicans look even pettier. Um, and I just don't see the, uh, I don't see the downside of it. And moreover, I don't see what the calamity would be if the Democrats did actually did a serious if there actually was a serious effort, like Nancy Pelosi says, this is leadership. Let the Republicans figure out their own thing. That's not leadership. I mean, like if you're a bunch of crazy, if a bunch of goofball kids are behaving like idiots, it's not leadership to say, let it, you know, well, just let it, let them run their course. Right. You intervene and you do something. And I, I sincerely think that like, um, I'm a very conservative dude, but I would rather, I would rather work with a Tim Ryan like Democrat than, than Lauren Boebert, who thinks like, um, if only it was literally said, if only Jesus had an AK 40 had an AR 15, uh, to defend his rights, everything would have worked out better. I mean, like what is wrong with this idea of actually proposing some sort of bipartisan thing, either on merits or on some sort of cynical level? See, what I find fascinating is at some point, if the 2021 hold in their no votes, Kevin McCarthy ends up against a wall. Now we saw last night, he is, I mean, I think at this point, he's given away everything he has. There's nothing left um, in terms of their demands. At some point, this isn't about demands. They just don't want Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Okay, so at that point, sure, Kevin right. McCarthy's up against the wall. And he has said he would not uh, work with Democrats in order to get the speakership. But as Steve said, this is like all he's ever wanted since, you know, third grade staring up at his bedroom ceiling or whatever. Um, and... If it's a choice between Kevin McCarthy having the title speaker while cutting a deal with 20 Democrats to vote present uh, to lower the overall bar needed to win the speakership. And in order to get that deal, as you said, maybe there's some sort of power sharing agreement, some committee chairmanships that go to Democrats, whatever that may look like. I mean, is there anything more catastrophic when the alternative is? a Steve Scalise speakership that all the Republicans are on board with, no deal with Democrats needed. I mean, doesn't that just make it the ultimate? This was only about Kevin McCarthy having the title speaker for however short a period that may last with however little actual accomplishment may go along with that. So I don't see any world in which that can happen because um, at some point he loses way more than 20 votes after he cuts that deal because the alternative is so easy and it's right there. The only way at this point, I think you end up with Kevin McCarthy as, um, as speaker is because he, he gives away everything. They know he won't be speaker for long. I mean, I don't, I actually don't see it really working out I mean, very he, well. He offered a one-term term limit for his speakership in one of these negotiations, which is, I mean, it's, He's a, he wants to be a Sino, a speaker in name only, but the Republican caucus has to reject that at some point, don't they, Steve? I don't know. I'm not going to answer your question because I want to ask you guys a question. Oh, my God. At some point, would it make sense? Jonah just did that. Whatever. You're a hijacker, too. Jonah's a hijacker, Sarah too. the Kevin McCarthy of hosts. You already, have your, own pod, you already <laughs> have your own podcast. You're taking over this one, too. Uh, so, so at some point, my question to you is, at some point, would it make sense for Democrats um, again, setting aside what the right thing to do is, but for political purposes, wouldn't it make sense for Democrats, let's say on the seventh or eighth vote, if McCarthy doesn't remove himself, there's no progress. 
for Democrats to just say, maybe using some of the arguments that that Jonah just suggested, to, to, to release, for Democratic leadership to release some of their members to vote to make Kevin McCarthy speaker. Because if they do that, he's so damaged right now because of this process, and nobody has any expectation that he's going to be able to do anything anyway. Right, wouldn't they rather have a weak speaker? Yeah. A weak speaker and a speaker that they know the MAGA crowd would say, for everything he says and does for two years, this is a Democrat-aided speaker in Kevin McCarthy. He's doing the bidding of liberals. He's, I mean, isn't there at some point, do they, do they get to that point? So I know Steve hasn't seen this movie, but Jonah, do you remember the movie Election with Reese Witherspoon oh, back sure. in the yeah. 90s? Tracy Flick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're making a sequel, by the way, with Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, Kevin McCarthy has become Tracy Flick. I think the Democrats can't stand him. So, like, even though that makes political rational sense in some ways, like, what happens when you just really don't like the guy? Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 to just compound Steve's lostness in pop culture, there's a certain bit of, like, Seinfeld returning the code for spite thing. Because a big chunk of the people who are against McCarthy, they won't take yes for an answer, right? And, like, like it's very difficult to negotiate with people who won't take yes for an answer. And um, particularly who came in with no conception of what yes is or what, what, the, what victory looks like, and they're still not willing to take yes for an answer. Um, and so, like, the reality is they want to get rid of Kevin McCarthy for spite. You know, I have, I have friends, I have a couple of friends who work on the Hill, um, and, you know, they just tell me that just, people just don't like Kevin McCarthy. It's like they don't trust him. He tells people what they want to hear, and then he doesn't follow through on promises. And I think, you know, there, there are only two ways to sort of be a speaker that people want, or three. One is being like, really effective, which implies that you keep your word and you, you know, you execute and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, two is to actually, or also implies being someone that you fear. No one fears them. And then the other thing is, is to be ideologically committed because then even if you can't get concessions out of the guy, you know, where his, his, uh, uh, you know, his, his go no farther points are. McCovey McCarthy has none of those things. It's very much like, um, or at least he's perceived not to. It's it's like there's always been this debate about people who want to be president to be president and people want to be president to do things as president. And Kevin McCarthy is sort of has this kind of like, he needs this on his resume because he's such a creature of Capitol Hill that he just, it's like, it's his MacGuffin. You know, it's just like the thing that, his character needs to, to it's, it's, it's his ring of power and he's golem. All right. I'm taking it back. The host ship. I have two questions on this and then I want to move on to some other topics. Um, the first question is, is there a world in which Democrats all start voting for Don Bacon or some sort of extreme centrist Republican Extreme so, centrist, extreme I love it. Extreme centrist. <laughs> Raging moderates. Uh, as, let me rephrase that as, is there a possibility that the next speaker of the House is someone who hasn't, who we haven't talked about, who hasn't been on the nomination names yet? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, do, I think, jumping in first, I think it's less likely to be that kind of an arrangement and and more likely to be sort of an alternative to... McCarthy, who Republicans, if Republicans get to the point where they tire of this process um, and sort of feel like they need to move forward, um, is there somebody who Republicans can turn to who's not Kevin McCarthy, maybe who's not Steve Scalise, and say, you know, be a caretaker speaker, help us get through this? Um, you know, names like Patrick McHenry come up. I've heard Drew Ferguson. Um, you know, I think the, there are a handful of other people who are sort of well-respected within the conference. Mike Gallagher, I saw somebody mention Mike Gallagher today. Um, I think it would be a thankless job. It wouldn't surprise me at all if, if some of those people who are smart decide that this, it's a total loser and they didn't want to do it. But it's, it seems to me entirely possible that, that that's where this ends up. All right. 
last question on this. We haven't talked about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, after the first day of failed voting, comes out sort of late in the evening um, with a full endorsement of Kevin McCarthy. Doesn't move a single vote. And in fact, McCarthy loses an additional vote the next day. What is that? Does it say anything about Donald Trump's changing sway within Republican Party? I mean, these are the the House Republicans, um, 20 of whom at least weren't interested in what Donald Trump said, at least not enough to change their vote. At the same time, Donald Trump also didn't spend the last three months exactly, you know, Lyndon Johnson style twisting arms to try to help Kevin McCarthy. Is it just that nobody thinks Donald Trump really means it? Jonah. I think yes to all of the above. I think you can overread how bad this is for Trump. I think it's bad. I think this has been a bad week for Trump. I, I mean, I don't actually believe that Trump cares whether Kevin McCarthy is speaker. Oh, of course not. Yeah, of course not. Um, but uh, I think this has definitely been a bad week for Trump for big long-term historical reasons and also just sort of practical politics reasons. Uh, first of all, this whole mess is the result of him screwing up the 2022 midterms. If Kevin McCarthy and Mitch Daniel, uh, Mitch McConnell could have just simply picked the candidates they wanted to run from primary straight through to general, they would have enough extra seats to both be in power today. Um, this is, you know, this is the vengeance on the, um, of the, of the MAGA detritus that is visiting upon um, uh, Kevin McCarthy. And, but moreover, though, I think I think you hit on the, the the reason why it's not as bad as some people claim it is or want it to be for Trump, which is that I don't think anybody believes Trump cared. And this is not really in the much the same way that like he doesn't get he gets blamed from political professionals, um, but not from sort of rank and file people as much as he should for how much he screwed up the 2022 midterms. Um, but because they just, they don't, they don't see it as his fault in some bizarre way. And I think that like, this is one of these things where, because it's not really about Donald Trump and Donald Trump doesn't stake his ego on it. It kind of just sort of evaporates a little bit. But that said, what we're seeing now is what Trumpism without Trump looks like, right? Because this has all been MAGA on MAGA violence. Half the House Freedom Caucus are voting for McCarthy, half aren't. Um, um, I don't know if those are exact numbers, but it's close. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene versus Lauren Boebert is, you know, it's Iran-Iraq war for people like me. And um, I think that this is just simply a sign that while Trumpism as a psychological phenomenon and a populist approach to politics will outlive Trump, we are in the sort of like Trump is in the rearview mirror stage um, for a lot of it, because if you're willing to sort of, if Bobert is willing to call Trump and say, screw you, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking, sticking to my guns. That means he's just not the Trump he was three years ago. So I want to put a pin in this discussion because I think we need to talk about it more next week. Hopefully we'll have a speaker by that point, but more importantly, we'll know what the rules for the next Congress are because McCarthy's making all these deals um, that could have actually an enormous impact to Jonah's point about the last 20 years of the House really being consolidated into basically just the speaker um, and taking away a lot of the legislative function of the other 434 folks. Um, and that's led to then the types of people who want to run for Congress in the first place um, and, and changed the whole body. If some of these changes actually do come to pass, it'll be fascinating to see whether we go back to that pre-Newt uh, Gingrich-ish shift and whether the result of that is actually to, in a house this closely divided, as our own Haley Bird uh, was writing, whether in fact this is going to empower Democrats a lot more or to put it differently, like empower Democrats this time, but it empower the minority party um, if they can just scoop up a few members from the other side. So I want to talk about that next time. But with our time remaining, uh, Steve, 
you wanted to talk potentially about Biden reelection prospects. Uh, this has been a great week for Joe Biden because there have been no headlines about Joe Biden. Right. And the headlines that there have been, um, or at least the articles that have been written, have Joe Biden just quietly performing the duties of president. Um, it's been an interesting How quaint. three months for Joe Biden. I, I, you know, Sarah, you and I have this this bet that neither Trump nor Biden will be the nominees of their respective parties. I feel very good about the Trump side of that bet. I feel less good about the Biden side of that bet than I did when I made it. And I think he was, in some ways, if you go back to the summer of uh, of 2022, the weaker of the two prospective nominees, uh, given where he was and given the, the course of the the, the country. Um, it, it's, but I don't think, I think there was an open question before the 2022 midterms in Biden's own mind about whether he was going to run. I think there were, he was hearing from um, some advisors that he should take a a deep breath and think hard about running both because of his age and because of the criticism that he's taken, but also because um, of the, the polling numbers suggested that he could well lose. Those numbers have shifted a bit. His approvals are slightly higher. The direction of the country numbers are very slightly higher, not much higher. But I think Biden, particularly in the context of the Democratic Party, is in a much stronger position today um, because he presided over this these midterm elections. And a lot of the conversation that you heard from Democratic strategists and office holders who were frustrated with him, who, you know, were concerned that if he stepped aside, Kamala Harris wasn't up to the job, that there could be a real free-for-all in a Democratic primary. You don't hear that very much uh, talking to them these days. And I think it's a pretty interesting change. I happen to think that Biden will be a, a weak nominee and a weak presidential candidate. A lot can happen between now and, and November 2024, of course. But um, some of those fundamentals haven't changed much. And I think the prospect that we could be headed into a recession in 2023 uh, could weaken his hand considerably. But he seems to be in a much stronger position today than he was shortly before the election in November and certainly than he was last summer. I, I, so I, go back, I, 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 I agree with you if you're looking, if you're holding Biden as the, as the constant, right? As the, as, if you're isolating him as the variable. But I think that Biden's prospects to run for re-election have always been sort of paired with the covariant, which is, or covariable, which is Trump, right? right. Trump looks really bad for re-election right now. Like no one cares that he announced, no one cares that he's the only one who announced. Um, he's looking pretty impotent and kind of pathetic. Um, and if the reporting is right, Biden has always said that if Trump runs, he runs because he thinks it's like his mission on earth to keep Trump from ever returning to the presidency. And he's convinced himself based on a data sample of one uh, that he's the only person uh, that can stop Trump from being president. And maybe he is. I mean, I think it'd be kind of hilarious if for the second time or third time in a decade, we, you know, like in, in 2016, you had the most unpopular political person in the country running against the second most unpopular political person in the country. And it would be interesting to see us and terrifying to see us nominate two essentially octogenarians or near octogenarians who will um, uh, have the only chance of losing to the other. Because I think that if, if Trump is not the nominee, if it's a DeSantis and, you know, inshallah, it's Mitch Daniels or whatever. Um, I think Biden loses pretty badly. Um, I think Biden needs Donald Trump to be the nominee to be reelected. And, and he may know that. And his wife may be like, Hey, look, you're old. You're kind of having a rough time. I understand if it's to be stop Donald Trump from winning, it's worth running again, but otherwise maybe you should, you know, pass the torch. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think this just makes the whole game theory a lot more complicated to figure out. I've got another question for you, which is, uh, 
Debbie Stabenow, the senator from Michigan, just announced that she won't be seeking re-election, opening up a Senate seat in Michigan. I'm curious, is Pete Buttigieg, who moved from Indiana to Michigan recently, is he Hillary Clinton goes to Chappaqua? Or do is there still some politics of carpet bagging? Or, is, or are we past that? That everyone's national now? It's interesting. I didn't know. I, I missed this entirely that he moved to Michigan. Um, I think the carpet bagging thing is real in some places and not in other places. Like it didn't hurt Hillary at all that she was a carpet bagger in New York because New York has got such a cosmopolitan globalist vote and ethos. Um, but like, we know it hurt Dr. Oz terribly that he was from New Jersey and running for Senate and Pennsylvania. I just don't know enough about Michigan to have a good insight on that. Buttigieg presumably would handle the carpet bagging issue a little better than Dr. Oz did. <laughs> he made, he made really every mistake you could possibly mistake on that issue specifically um, going in. Look, I think that's, it. first of all, it's interesting that, that Debbie Stabenow would decide not to run for re-election um, in that political environment. There are many, many reasons that she would make such a decision, but the, the political environment in, in Democrats in 2024, when she was an incumbent, I think uh, you know, she had every reason to believe that she could, could be re-elected. Um, but it, we didn't see Democratic retirements in 2022. And it's one of the reasons that Democrats overperformed. Uh, it will be interesting to see if she is the first of several. Um, there are really difficult races for Democrats on the, in the, on the Senate side. Republicans have uh, a very nice landscape, as Sarah, as you've written about in the sweep. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if she, she's sort of the beginning of a trend. I should say... Um, an open seat will make it much more attractive to some prospective Republican candidates as well. Um, Peter Meyer, who lost his uh, reelect bid for the House um, when he was beaten in a primary by a super MAGA candidate who then went on to lose in a general election, I would think has lots of cross-party appeal. He's sort of sane, common-sense Midwesterner, um, probably reasonable name ID, ID in, the, in the state. I would imagine that he would give it a pretty close look. And then um, John James, who just elected uh, to the, the House, but somebody that Republicans have been touting for uh, several years as a, as a potential sort of face of a new Republican Party, uh, I would imagine. Previous candidate. Word. Yep, previous candidate. Again, pretty high name ID. I would imagine that he would, would get some encouragement to run. Um, I can say, I'll read a tweet from um, someone who will soon be announced as a new dispatch staffer. Um, David Drucker uh, is uh, tweeting, I asked John James if he has any interest in a third Michigan Senate bid in 2024, given the open seat, and he said... Look, I haven't even been sworn into Congress yet, so here's my plan. Get sworn in and get to work serving the people of Michigan's 10th district. Um, so that Sounds like running to, for Senate to me. Sounds like running <laughs> for Senate to me. Uh, I did bury the, the news there. We are, yeah, we are excited to have uh, David Drucker, author of In Trump's Shadow, incredibly well-sourced uh, reporter, has been with the Washington Examiner for several years, uh, we're very excited to be adding him to our uh, political reporting team here in the next few weeks as we continue to to beef up and build out so that we can do a good job of covering exactly these kinds of things um, over the next couple of years and the lead up to 2024. All right. Last, last uh, we're, we've changed our last topic instead of not worth your time to not worth your time, question mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's my question to you both. In the last week, you know, DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field at an NFL game, cardiac arrest. Um, ABC, we lost a, a family member, our executive producer for this week, um, 37 years old, cardiac arrest. And 
online, you know, in sort of the Twitter sphere, there's this, you know, raging, deeply unpleasant thing going on where the conversation immediately turns to vaccines and that somehow if you go through someone's old Instagram, you can prove that they went to a place that required vaccines. Therefore, they had the vaccine and this is what caused the cardiac arrest in a, you know, otherwise healthy 37-year-old male. I mean, according to, again, people who've never met him and know nothing about his medical history. Um, is this just a conversation happening on Twitter? And I really need you to say yes. The rest of the country, like, has everyone just memory hold every time? Famous, not famous, athletes, young people used to, to have cardiac arrest in sporting events on and off the field. Um, really, is this the conversation we're having every time some family experiences just an unspeakable tragedy now? I think it's, I think it's mostly just a Twitter thing. Okay. That makes uh, me happy. I, I think it's, um, it's Alex Berenson and Charlie Kirk and a few other grotesquely irresponsible ghoulish people, um, going around trying to make spurious arguments where they make anecdotes into data and it works on Twitter because Twitter doesn't require an argument and you can't do it in an op-ed because you'd have to actually marshal facts. You can't do it on TV because you'd have to be, uh, at least on a lot of TV shows, have be questioned about what you're saying. Um, and have some background and some health. Yeah. I, I, so I, th I think it's just one of the sicker, sadly not the sickest, but one of the sicker parts of, of the social media Twitter universe and I, I uh you know I thought you were going to talk about what this means for football and all that kind of stuff but like I I'm disgusted by the 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 desire to scare people out of taking vaccines um I wish that if it was going to still be a thing it would be a thing of the left like it was prior to covid um or largely a thing of the left but yeah I just you know I don't I just I don't think it's a something that has real traction in in real life I just think it's so weird even if you didn't know the person. And I get it that that's, you know, I did know Dax. Um, but the first thing you see when you see that a mother and her two children under two years old don't have a father is to think, aha, finally, I have a good talking point right. for my... Yeah. I mean, like literally, yes, I've got my, yeah, it's gross. Yeah. It's and I'm going to get on Twitter and talk about it. And this isn't an area that I've studied um, with any sort of academic background. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a epidemiologist, like nothing. I just really want this to work out for me. I, anyway, but Steve, if you have thoughts about the NFL and what DeMar Hamlin means more broadly, but again, I think until you actually know what happened, it's right. a little hard to say that this means anything for the NFL because again, sadly, tragically, horribly, this actually does happen with relative frequency. Um, it's obviously very rare overall, but sometimes young people have cardiac arrest. Yeah, I mean, just briefly first on the on the question about Twitter and, and vaccines. I mean, as as most people who listen to this podcast regularly or read our 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 work in text, no, we generally try to avoid questioning or making assumptions about motives, and largely try to avoid name calling except when Jonah what did you say Maltroons and Maroons and Poltroons and, Poltroons and, yeah, and Gibbons and, yeah. and scumbags yeah. but I think it's totally appropriate here I mean these people are the lowest form of humanity and they deserve every um, every everything we can pile on them I do think it's worth spending a minute to, just maybe to to uh, on motives for 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 a second because I think it could be uh, could be helpful in this in this game where Twitter is, you know, the main medium or one of the main media for expanding your outreach or your your influence, so little of what these actors do is about actually telling the truth or communicating what they really believe. It is about getting engagement. It is about getting other people to 
either retweet them um, favorably, spread their message, or I think just as effective from their standpoint, getting people to attack them. Because then they're at the center of the conversation, their name is out there, and they can build an audience among their people and then try to monetize that audience. I think that's what we've seen. Um, I think that's part of what we're seeing on on Capitol Hill with with some of the shenanigans here. I mean, Matt Gates has been sending out uh, fundraising emails. I stood up to Kevin McCarthy. I mean, so much of what we see is this performative politics, but it, it really reaches its most grotesque form on something like this where there's just bad and irresponsible. Um, it's not even speculation. I don't even know what to call it. Um, thinking out loud. Just the, the really important point to make about the, the, the anti-vax heart attack thing is that it would be just as evil and irresponsible and ghoulish if they turned out to be correct that this was somehow tied to having the vaccine because they don't know, right. right? They just want it to be true and they want you to be afraid of the vaccine. It doesn't, like, I know one of these times I'm going to make, I'm going to mock or criticize somebody who does this and then six months from now it's going to turn out after an autopsy that, hey, it turns out it was true. And they're going to say, ah, I've been vindicated. No, because it was, you had to wait six months to have any idea what, what the truth was which makes you still a jackass. Well, on that note, um, interesting 2023 so far, huh? <laughs> interesting is one way to put it. <laughs> this isn't quite what I was expecting for the first few days. We have I David like French going were... to the New York Times, David yeah. Drucker coming to us. We have no Speaker of the House. Um, huh. David French, by the way, will still continue with advisory opinions, and you're still going to hear him here from time to time as well. He's actually just not on today because he is traveling per usual, but he'll be back next week on this podcast. So, um, and in the meantime, super fun for him. Sad for us. Sad for us, but if I can add it, it's definitely sad for us. We should be clear about that. We wish you were staying. We'd like to have him. But the quality of our pop culture takes has gone up one standard deviation. I mean, for, sh- for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know anything about pop culture, but I'm certain that that's true. But but I have to say, I mean, this is something I was thinking about yesterday, and I hate to give Jonah credit for this, but when we first, I mean, when I say first, I mean, when we really, really first had conversations about trying to to launch this thing and, and, and build a company, I think the one of the things that Jonah said that stuck with me then was I'm really interested in building an institution and building a, a place that, you know, has some staying power and that can amplify good arguments well beyond what's happening inside uh, the confines of, of the, the institution itself. And I would say what we're seeing with David is, is certainly a vindication, at least to some degree of, of that vision. Now, that's not to say that the New York Times wouldn't have been interested in David if he hadn't spent the last three plus years helping us build this and and doing all of his terrific work for us. But I think it's a it's it's a it's a pretty what well, I'm mixed metaphors, pretty significant silver lining that the kinds of arguments that David has been making, you know, for us with us for three years, National Review before that, are now going to get an audience of 11 million people on the pages of the New York Times. We're going to hear from a, a thoughtful, sane, smart conservative. So, um, And also there's something listeners don't know, which is that after every podcast, as soon as the recording stops, David looks at me and goes, good pod, no matter what. Like it could be the worst <laughs> pod. I have the flu and 102 fever and was incoherent. He will always be like, that was a really good pod. Um, and it's like this deeply annoying thing that he does. And so now like done, no more of that. He never, he never does it at the end of this podcast. That's I true. will know yeah, not once. It's just, just, <laughs> just literally has never, yeah. has never done that <laughs> other than for the obscure legal <laughs> podcast. All right. I'm going to leave everyone with one thing. Uh, a, a great, um, reporter, Ariel Edwards Levy over at CNN. I have to give her credit for this, but she said, can't believe we've gotten this far into the speakership negotiations without calling Chip Roy a, quote, bargaining chip. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Happy New Year, just... everyone. 
<laughs> I, I still don't understand why they didn't for the first round all wear go bigs or go home t-shirts, but that was you know. a good one too. Although Strong. I think my favorite meme, Jonah, was the one you put in to our Slack channel where it had the, you know, where you verify that you're not a robot and you have oh, yeah, to yeah, pick yeah. every uh, picture of a speaker and it's a bunch of, you know, audio speakers and two pictures of Kevin McCarthy that aren't checked. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, if you can't have fun doing this, guys, I mean, what's the point? All right. We will talk to you next week. Thank you for your support. Hope you're having a wonderful start to your new year. Give us a rating wherever you're listening to this. It helps other people find the podcast uh, and become a member of the dispatch. So you can hop in the comments section with your own hilarious speaker puns. 